Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. This is the podcast where I talk to various people here in Reno who are doing interesting and important things. And this week, we actually have two hosts for the show. As I've mentioned a few times on this season, I've had help producing the show from Ember Braun. Ember is a journalism student at the Reynolds School of Journalism at UNR, and she's here with me now. Ember, hello. Hello. It's great to be here. <laughs> yes, thank you. I'm glad to have you on the show. So you've been helping with, I think it was part of last season and most of this season, right? Mm-hmm. And I've had a couple opportunities to work with folks from the journalism school. Tell me a little bit about your experience so far at Reynolds. You're a sophomore, right? Yeah. Yeah. So how's, how has that gone and how have you enjoyed working on the podcast? It's all been really great. I've learned so much at the school and here. Lately, I've been really busy with finals, but I'm starting to get out of that, and uh, I'm really excited to be a junior, and being on the show has been great. I've learned like so much, and all of the editing has really helped me become like faster at it. I feel like all these skills are going to be really useful for the future. So Awesome. Yeah, and I know that you, so you have a new, an, another internship or job or something that you're starting soon, right? Yeah, yeah. I'll be a business reporting intern for KUNR this summer. <laughs> right on. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to have you able to host an episode too. We did this last season with Lynn, who was helping with the podcast as well. Lynn did an episode, and this week's episode is with Lynette Eddy from Eddy House. And you had an opportunity to kind of be part of that entire process, right? You came to meet Lynette with our first kind of like pre-interview meeting. Can you talk a little bit about your experience kind of seeing an episode from beginning to end, including hosting? Yeah, it was a lot more stressful than I thought it would be. Um, just like touring the Eddie house and getting to know Lynette before we even sat down to record the episode was really interesting. And then trying to host the episode at all was really scary to do that the first time. But overall, it was a really great experience. And I really like that I've been able to kind of learn more about our community too through this podcast. I think a lot of people don't give Reno that credit. So this podcast is doing a good job doing that. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, no, that's one thing that I've, uh, I frequently say is that the the real benefit of this podcast for me personally is that it has really helped me feel connected to what's going on in Reno in a way that I never was before. Just a couple years of doing this, and uh, with you even just a season or so, you've got to meet a pretty wide variety of people people. and uh, different areas. So I appreciate that, and I hope listeners have kind of the same experience listening to the show, where they get to learn about a wide variety of people that they might not know about otherwise. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, Well, with that, please enjoy this week's episode of Renoites, co-hosted by myself and Ember with Lynette Eddy. Lynette Eddy, welcome to Renoites. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Connor. Thank you for having me. We are very excited to have you on the show. Ember and I are going to be asking you some questions about the history of Eddy House and the work you're doing. You have a book that just came out. So people know the name Eddy from the Eddy House, which is a shelter for 18 to 24 year olds here in Reno. Can you just talk a little bit about what Eddie House is? Is shelter the right word for it? Okay. Eddie House is the central intake and assessment place for homeless and at-risk youth in Northern Nevada. What kind of services does Eddie House have right now? Well, we cover so many services, but basically basic needs. So that would be food, showers, access to services like getting your GED or employment, We help our clients with getting IDs, anything they need. And, you know, obviously food, we just get them on the right path. So a lot of that is people who've aged out of the foster care system who might not have a place to live. There are 
obviously drug, alcohol, mental health issues with young people that they need support. And Eddie House has a variety of services. Can you talk a little bit about the needs of that age group and how you came to the idea of Eddie House providing some of those services that were needed? Sure. So I was finishing up my master's degree in social work back in 2010, and I was doing an internship on Record Street in working with the homeless. And I noticed that a huge segment of the homeless population were these youth, 18 to 24 year olds, and they had no resources. They were staying in the adult shelter and it was not a good mix. You know, they were getting preyed on and they have different needs. The reasons they're homeless are different. So I realized we needed a specific place for these young people. And that's when I had the idea to do this. And then I just started it and it evolved into what it is now. Just for clarification too, is Eddie House the only service available in Reno right now for 18 to 24 year olds that is specifically targeted like at that age group? We are the central intake and assessment place, obviously, but there are other services. There's a place for girls, but it's a commitment it's a program. We're a low barrier service. Anyone can come in and get their basic needs met. And then we also have a program that's more long-term and we focus on specific needs and how to direct them on the right path to where they want to get to, whether it's, you know, employment, school, that kind of thing. Okay. And low barrier is? We have lockers and any time a youth comes in, they empty their pockets, they go in a locker. We don't ask any questions. They can stay at our place overnight. They can get food. They can take a shower. And yeah, we do have case managers that if they're accessible for all the needs of the kids, we do a lot of group therapy. We have therapists. We have every service you can imagine, medical, dental, haircuts, yoga, everything. So we're a full service agency, I guess you could say, nonprofit for all these youth. Why is the low barrier an important element in that? It makes it more accessible. You know, most of the youth, they wouldn't come. If we had a lot of rules right up front, they wouldn't come. And these kids are desperate, they're lonely, they're scared, they've run out of hope, and we have to open our hearts and our doors for them, no matter what. You mentioned that you were in school for social work. What brought you to that, your interest in being a social worker or or taking education around social work before Eddie House? This was kind of around the same time that you founded Eddie House, right? Mm Mm-hmm. What kind of brought you into this field in general? Oh, for years, I've always been volunteering or whatever, but my main focus was hospice. And I really enjoyed that. I did that for a few years. And then I realized I couldn't really do things that I really wanted to do, like get in more responsibility and that kind of thing, unless I had a degree. So that's why I went back to school. It's interesting that you did that just because it seems like hospice would be on the other end of the spectrum, right? Well, I had some younger clients and it was just an amazing experience. It was kind of an honor, I felt, to be at someone's passing. I know it sounds gloomy. I was not a popular at a cocktail party when they ask you what you do, but it, it was a really special time for me. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. You grew up in Reno then? Actually, I did not grow up in Reno. I've been all over. I lived in Truckee for 12 years and was going to UNR. So 
that's how I transitioned back into Reno. As soon as I finished school, that's when I jumped into the Eddie house. And I love Reno. It's my home. Do you think you could talk a little bit about your own experience? Why is it exactly that you decided to open the Eddie house? And what past experiences have you had that made this a really like personal, important thing for you to do? Well, like I said, I grew up all over the place, but I was pretty much an at-risk youth. (laughs) So I have experience with that. And I have experience with the feelings that these kids have. It really touched my heart. And that's, that was a huge driver. I mean, they're special. They need to feel like they're part of the community because they, a lot of them feel pretty lost. How do you do that? How do you make at-risk youth more part of the community or more connected? I have this formula. It's like letting the kids know they feel accepted and significant, those two things. And it's the accepted part is we don't judge them. They come in and we really see the specialness in each kid. And then the part that they matter. And that's when we bring out the uniqueness of each kid. But the big thing is connection, you know, feeling a part of something because that's huge. And I think that's huge for everyone too. How has Eddie House changed over the years? Because it started as a live-in program, right? And then it's now become more of a larger facility. What's in the future for Eddie House? Why did these changes come about? Yeah, it's gone through a lot of changes. When I started it, it was a home for aged out foster boys. And they came right out of the system, right into our home. And we then opened a restaurant down on West Street where the kids worked. Then we closed that down because (laughs) the restaurants are hard. And then we opened a drop-in center on East 6th Street because we realized there was a bigger need in the community for all these homeless kids out on the streets. We were only helping like eight kids. So we wanted to step up our game. And then we were there for a few years. And then we moved over to Willow Street, where we are in a larger location and can offer more services. And we're working right now on expanding. And what kind of prevention are you guys doing for chronic homelessness? What is your take on that? And how do you what do you think the solution for that is? Well, stability, obviously, we give them stability, we give them the tools to live an independent life. And uh, we have all the resources to help them succeed in whatever their journey is. But and that's huge, because prevention, I'm a strong believer that in order to reduce homelessness or even pretty much wipe it out, you have to work on this age group. It's 18 to 24. It's a vulnerable age group. And, you know, if you don't catch them now, they could have a lifetime of homelessness. So it's really important. Yeah. You're also a big believer in housing first, right? That Mm -hmm. sort of tactic. Can you talk a little bit about what housing first is? Well, it's the concept of you have to have a roof. You have to have a place to stay, a place to put your things, a place you call your home in order to work on the other things. It's like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to have a stable place to live before you can work on your mental health or your um, addiction problems or employment problems or whatever it is that's holding, that's the reason you're on the streets. So it does work. The statistics show that it works. It just costs money and political will. 
Do you think Eddie House has been successful with that, especially since you guys are the only, pretty much the only service for young adults right now? Are you hoping to change things and make it better? Or does it seem like it's working pretty well right now? Our success rate is really positive and just proves, I mean, you really need a place to go home to every night and sleep, put your things. And these kids that are out sleeping by the river, they're on survival mode. They're not thinking about, oh, how do I get my paperwork done, get into school or whatever. They're just so overwhelmed and they're just trying to get by every day, just Mm -hmm. each day, one day at a time. Yeah. Could you also explain a little bit, what are the misconceptions about homeless youth? You know, they're lazy or whatever. I mean, the general misconception I think about homelessness in general, Mm -hmm. it's And that's not true. I go out on outreach occasionally, and there's people out there that are working. And it's just housing and the shortage of housing. But I think with kids, it's more like they could pull themselves up by their bootstraps and this and that. But people don't realize a lot of these kids have no support system. They've been abused. They've had a lot of issues, you know, in their childhood. Many come out of the system. It's rough. And to expect them to have the tools and to just have a successful life, it's just not realistic. And to switch gears a little bit, your son, Brian, has been a big part of the Eddie House. How has your family being a part of the Eddie House, how has that impacted you? How has that made a difference? Oh, Brian. Oh, he was great. You know, he helped out in the beginning and we worked together and we started it and then it just expanded. And now he's out in Portland. He's been working with minors that are unaccompanied that come over the border. So yeah, he loves his job. And he's, he's really excited about what has happened. I am as well. Yeah, never dreamed that it would take off like this. Yeah. With the other services for unhoused people, at-risk people in Reno, how does Eddie House kind of fit into the big picture in the region, right? Like, obviously, you provide a service for underserved people, if it's the only place for folks who are 18 to 24 specifically, but how do you engage with or interact with other shelters or with the city? What does that look like, the collaboration and kind of working with other folks in Reno? Well, our model is unique. I picture it like the cog in the wheel. We are the center where all these other nonprofits come into our facility and offer services rather than having the kids go out in the city trying to find each service. So that's the beauty of it. All the supportive services under one roof, it's huge. And we work well with everyone. It was just seemed so fragmented in the beginning, but now with being the center of it, it's so much easier to provide services. And that's the model of the CARES campuses. That's how they talk about the CARES campuses. They want to build that to be like the all-in-one. And right now, that looks like a giant mega shelter. So it doesn't have all the services, but it is getting all the people to it. Can you talk a little bit about the city's strategy with the CARES campus and the mega shelter? It's obviously a very different scale to what Eddie House is doing. And it has the same, I think, theory behind it when they talk about it, but it doesn't seem to look the same. You know, having seen the Eddie House and being familiar with CARES, different vibe, to be sure. So can you talk a little bit about the different approaches, the CARES campus versus Eddie House versus other kind of residential programs? What are your thoughts on the different strategies and different ways of going about it? 
You know, honestly, I'm not deep in the mix anymore with what's going on, but I've been over there. I'm familiar with different services, but my whole dream, Magic Wand World, would be housing and the shelter service. It functions as a Band-Aid in my mind. I feel like our resources would be better used if we directly put people into housing and with services. And that's the key. You have to have the services on site where it's accessible. You have to. You can't just put people into a house, leave them alone and expect them to flourish because they just don't, they don't have the tools. So when you house them, just make sure the services are there. But that's the dream. I know it's expensive, but it's the answer. The cost of homelessness is crazy when you look at the jails and the detox and the hospitals. I mean, being on the streets, it takes a toll on your health. It would just benefit the whole community economically and socially. And focusing more on the Eddie House now, can you explain a little bit what it looks like as young adults age out of the Eddie House? What is that process like? Sure. We stick with them. You know, we stick with them. We don't just say, okay, see ya. We have a transitional home and we're hoping to have more transitional space. And that looks like it might be coming up. So we are always there for them. I just was with a couple of kids yesterday who had transitioned out and they were back at Eddie House for meeting with the therapist, going to a group, whatever services we have, they're always welcome to continue to stay with us. So you've also mentioned when Connor and I were at the tour at the Eddie House, it seems like a lot of young adults in the Eddie House are either working or going to school while they're there. Can you explain a little bit about the process of how do they be a part of the group while also going to work or school? What does that process look like? How are they still involved in the group, even though they're doing these other things? They attend, but, you know, obviously they can't if they're at work or school. And we love to not have them there during the day. So that's the way we run the groups. We also have groups in the evening, that kind of thing, too, to service those kids. Mm -hmm. And you were also saying earlier that you still do street outreach. What is that like? How does that go for you? Well, it's eye-opening. I learn something every time I go out. And honestly, when I get back, I'm feeling sad. It makes me wonder how as a community, or as just human beings, how we can ignore people that are desperate and need help. If people want to help with that outreach, or just the Eddie House in general, do you guys have volunteers? How can people, can people get involved with the Eddie House? Oh, absolutely. On our website, we have plenty of opportunities for volunteering. If you just go to eddiehouse.org, you can see all the opportunities for sure. Let's talk about your book. You just wrote a book and it's part biography. It's part your story. It's part about Eddie House and it's part kind of self-help and inspiring people to think more about what's important to them as far as not listening to their ego and more paying attention to their spirit and what they really need in your life. Can you tell me a little bit about just what the book is about and what inspired you to write it? You know, I had some challenges early on 
just before I decided to start Eddie House, and my biggest challenge was when my husband died by suicide. It was a rough time, a really dark time, but I had to pretty much go deep in those dark times, as we all do when we're challenged. And I had to rely on my core, and I call it my spirit, to get me through that and to turn a bad thing into a good thing. I've studied spirituality for a while, and I really believe in the psychology of it, of managing our thoughts and pretty much determine how our life will go. I'm a believer our thoughts, they create our choices and the direction our life will go in. So learning how to not go into the victim mode and understanding our negative patterns. Now it sounds deep, but this is so true. Uh, I wrote the book with this message and I broke it down where I've been getting feedback that it's pretty easy to follow along. It can help anyone. And honestly, it's helped me a lot. If you follow your heart and not your mind, you know, your mind is ego that your inner critic, it can to do havoc on you and prevent you from living an authentic life. And thank goodness I was able to stick with my spirit. And that's what drove me to get Eddie House done. The book goes pretty deep into this. It's been called self-help memoir. And the memoir part, I wanted it to be my story, but then blend it in with the lessons I've learned. You know, a lot of uh, self-help books, they seem to be too dry for me. So this I wanted more relatable. So I talk about how my husband lost his spirit, and I, I witnessed that in real time. And I talk about the traps of the ego that he fell into And I designate those traps, you know, the never enough, never good enough, never have enough, that kind of thing. And then comparison, self-judgment and all that with others too. And then the beliefs versus truth, the assumptions we make that cause a lot of psychological suffering. We We all have shadows and we have to expose those shadows. And usually they're from childhood or whatever. Scrub those wounds clean and learn to love yourself. So these are the steps I talk about in the book and how if we have more self-awareness, we can manage our thoughts. Neuroscientists are proving this and neuroplasticity and all these ways they can prove it, but you can change those negative patterns. You just have to recognize when that ego shows up. And I'm not saying just get rid of it, but know how to manage it. Don't let it manage you. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a lot of importance on spirituality. And just looking through some of your past, it seems like there's a lot of importance on Eckhart Tolle and his teachings with spirituality. Could you just explain a little bit how you found him and also just what his teachings are in general? Sure. Yeah, it was after my husband's passing. And I was trying to figure out, I was trying to diagnose him basically, because I was finishing up my master's degree, and we were learning about diagnosing patients and clients, whatever. And I couldn't find anything that really fit 
what my husband was going through, all the criteria for depression, bipolar, all that. It just didn't fit. And I just knew in my heart, he just lost his spirit. You know, he went, started making a lot of money and status and had to buy all these crazy things. And then I found out gambling, girlfriend, it was bizarre. He didn't enjoy nature like he used to. He didn't find pleasure in the simple things. So I watched in real time how he shifted from his spirit to his ego. And then I just happened to be reading some, uh, it was Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now. And he said that he was about to end his life at one point. And he said to himself, I can't live with myself anymore. And then he stopped himself and said, I can't live with myself. There must be two of me. Hmm. And that's when he really did a lot of self-reflection and he came up with, well, the I is the spirit and the myself is my ego. And when I read that, it just kind of stunned me because those were the exact words Bob wrote in his goodbye letter. So I dug deep into what is this ego? Because I thought it was just something like, oh, someone's just full of themselves. And then I realized that all the research that is outdated. And then Carl Jung, he got into it a little different. And it the way it just evolved, it just is this negative self-critic we all have in our heads. It's like this nasty roommate. We all deal with it. And we go down these rabbit holes of negative self-talk. I know that in the end, Bob, he was just trying to fill this void. He was just suffering. His ego was trying to tell him who he really was, and he lost who he really was. Were those experiences what also led you to create open heart mindfulness? Can you also just explain what open heart mindfulness is? In the book, I break it down into how to manage your mind. And I call it the open heart mindfulness method. I have a couple of charts. I have one example is method when you start feeling like contracted or you're feeling a disturbance, I call it, or you're uneasy, like something's bothering you, you're low energy, you're just, oh, you're out of sorts, that kind of thing. And that's your thoughts, your thoughts are being negative. And what I put together was this acronym called REAL, R-E-A-L. And it's the first thing is just recognize the feeling, usually in your body, like if you're contra you feel contracted, you're just feeling not right. Okay, well, then E, examine the where these thoughts are coming from. What do you think? Like, what is going on in, with this thought process you're having? And then recognize what trap of the ego am I falling into? Am I feeling like I'm not good enough? Am I feeling like I'm not doing enough? Am I feeling like... I don't have enough. Everyone else has more. A lot of that comes from social media with the kids, especially at Eddie House. But it's, you know, the assumptions, like you start thinking, oh my goodness, that person gave me a dirty look. What did I do? Oh no, how am I? And then, you know, I mean, you might find out later it had nothing to do with you, whatever. You examine those thoughts you're having and then you acknowledge them from a place of compassion. Don't be hard on yourself. Just step back and say, okay, I was heading down that rabbit hole. Okay, I'm on top of it. I'm going to ignore it. I know it's just a trap of the ego. It's trying to get me. Uh-uh, I'm not going there. Let it go. Just let it go and move on. 
it sounds easy and I know we're humans and we do get trapped in these ego traps. But, and another thing, if you're feeling off and you're just, something triggers you, it could be as simple as someone, a smell or something that reminds you of someone that abused you in your past. And then you're just like, oh my God. And you're just like all of a sudden upset. Well, these are the wounds that you have to look at. You know, you do have to take the time. There's no way around it. You've got to do the work. You've got to go into those dark places and scrub them clean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So not only are you dealing with these really heavy topics in your book, but just writing a book at all is a really difficult thing. So what was your writing process like? How did that go for you? It was a trip. I mean, I've, I'm not an English major. <laughs> I never really read books. And the ego hit me many times during the process. Who do you think you are? You can't do this, blah, blah, blah. But my spirit was like, I've got this message. I need to get it out. And it just, it just fueled me. And I made it into... It was just a beautiful process. I went to Mexico by myself, didn't know anyone, and I just hunkered down in this little place and just wrote for a few months. That was the longest stretch, but it was mostly off and on, coffee shops, whatever, and then obviously staying involved in Eddie House. That, And then I did international volunteer work as well over the past five years, but it took me about five years. Wow, five years. How has it been since the book was released? I'm blown away. I've had so many people contact me and say that it's really helped them with their struggles. And it's been, I wasn't expecting this, um, which makes my heart full, is that's why I wrote it. What's next for you? Kind of a broad question, but what's in store for you? I've been kind of going back and forth on this, but I've had such a positive response about the book. And I've had people say, well, I need to read it over and over to refresh myself on the key points. And so I think I'm going to write a book number two, but more of a condensed version without the memoir part and just have the key points in there. Who are some of the people who have helped you do all of the things that you've done? We talked a little bit about your family. You know, Brian helped a lot with Eddie House. Who else has kind of been there along the way and who is helping things run now? When we went on the tour at Eddie House, I know Jillian was fantastic and she's a relatively new addition at Eddie House. Can you just talk a little bit about some of the people who have supported and helped along the way? It's been so amazing. We've had such great people coming in and helping and the community has pulled together. We've had really key community members that have helped out a lot. Our staff is crazy cool. I mean, they're all there for the right reasons and they relate to the clients. They give them respect. It's been amazing. But on a personal level, I'd have to say my sister who passed away four years ago and she <laughs> kept me going when I had my ego <laughs> visits. <laughs> and um, then she got us into international volunteering and that was that was mind blowing we went all over the world different places and it just taught me a lot about human nature and really made me ask a lot of questions in that international work did you find a lot of things were the same and or were a lot of things different and like how did you compare that experience to what you've seen here in Reno or in the United States 
I do write about it in the last part of the book. Each visit, each country, like I did hospice work in Tanzania, and then it was refugee camps in Greece. And then these were for the Syrians and Afghanistan people that were coming across. And then uh, I worked in poverty-stricken schools in Ghana. These experiences, I was able to get close with people and see their vulnerabilities and it was a magical experience. It was just soul to soul. I call it soul to soul, not roll to roll. And I ended up, my last experience was in a poor area in Costa Rica, and it was a blue zone, and there's only five in the world. And these are places where people live the longest, they're the happiest. And I, after seeing all the suffering and poverty. The one thing that stood out was everyone's so happy. They have nothing and they're happy. And in this place in Costa Rica at the Blue Zone, it was community. It's a poor little town and they were so connected with each other. And I actually asked them, I'm like, what makes you so happy? And they're like, well, if my friend is sad, I'll help my friend. If I'm sad, my friend will help me. Everyone takes care of each other. And that's what I feel we're missing. When I come home from these trips, I'm always like, how do these places have nothing? And how do they get it right as far as being connected and enjoying themselves and enjoying each other. And then we have it so wrong and we're the richest nation in the world. Mm-hmm. From your experience um, in these other places, how do you think Reno can help people build up our community? <laughs> take care of each other. That's it, man. We need to take care of each other. And we can't look at homelessness like an inconvenient truth or something or make excuses like, oh, they're they're doing it. They don't have to be this way. They're all addicts. And then just dismiss it. No, we have to take care of these are human beings. I honestly think if a dog froze to death on Virginia Street, what would happen? Everyone would have, you know, oh my God, how did that happen? They'd help, you know. But we had, what, 100 humans die on our streets last winter? And that's just not right. That would not happen in other places. They take care of each other. Lynette, you've done such wonderful work. You've done so many things. What did we miss? What do people need to know about you, about the Eddie House and your work? Just we got to help each other out. We really do. And it feels good. You always get more than you give. It's a true thing. It really is. Well, Lynette, thank you so much for coming on Renoites. It was great to have you on the show. And thanks for all the work that you do in the community. Um, Eddie House is really, really important. We talked a little bit about having something for especially young people, 18 to 24. And I think focusing on that specific community and giving those kind of resources where they might not exist at all otherwise is really, really valuable. And thanks for the book, for writing the book. I have read not the entire thing yet, but part of it. And uh, it's, again, really valuable to have these kind of insights about how we can be happier with ourselves and how we can feel better about who we are. It's an important topic that I think a lot of people do struggle with. So thanks for using your story to help, you know, let other people be more comfortable and better with themselves as well. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show to talk all about it. Well, thank you. It's been great. Thanks a lot. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Reno Whites and special thanks to our guest, Lynette Eddy. 
And thanks, Ember, for all of the work that she has done on the podcast this season. Really appreciate it. And it has been great to be able to partner with the Reynolds School of Journalism. I am actually recording with them next week as a guest on their Our Town Reno podcast. So keep an eye out for that. I'll be sure to link that on my social media. Next week's episode of the podcast has a very special guest. Me, I'm going to be the guest on next week's show. I have a surprise guest host for next week's episode. Really looking forward to this one. It was great to have this conversation where I was on the other side of the microphone, getting to talk a little bit more about who I am, what I am trying to do with this project, things that I'd like to see in Reno. It was really great. It was a great conversation and really fun to have a surprise guest host for you next week. So be sure to tune in to that one. And of course, help spread the word about the show, tell friends, family, share posts on social media, all that good stuff. And if you want to come see me and say hi, pick up some stickers, I am going to be at the Riverside Farmers Market most Sundays. The market is every Sunday morning at Idlewild Park. I'm going to be there most of the time for the coming months. So stop by the Riverside Farmers Market. A lot of great vendors there. I did an episode with Casey Crispin, the founder of that market, and it's really exciting to be a part of it. And that's all I've got for you this week. See you next time. (laughs) 